check it out. All right, let's get busy. Let's jump back into the Lord's Prayer tonight from our journey through the Sermon on the Mount. Tonight we arrive at what, in my opinion, is the most contentious part. That's probably the wrong word, but it's the one I'm going to use. The most contentious part of the Lord's Prayer, and I say contentious in that what Jesus talks about here looks as if it has sort of an opposite landing spot than where Paul lands in the epistles. And so we've got to definitely do some work contextually, and we're going to do some work with Paul and see where the New Testament rounds this out. And of course, we're talking about, as our subtitle shows, forgive us our debts. I have a lot of ground to cover. Brian told me that it's possible we're setting a record tonight on screen changes. So in, in light of that information, let's waste no time and let's get busy and, and read from the top the Lord's Prayer. You've done this. We've done this each week for the last two. That's okay. We need to rehearse it again. And then we're going to focus in on the part that we haven't really paid attention to yet. From Matthew 6, verse 9, in this manner, therefore, pray our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. And this is where we are tonight, beginning in verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I'll go ahead and tell you now that for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I think I've told you this each week is a, a late addition to text. The earliest translations do not include that doxology at the end of the prayer. So for the most part, both in the Catholic and the Protestant world uh, and all points in between, we, uh, we tend to stop the Lord's prayer as far as what we're pretty sure Jesus said right after evil one. And so we just tack the amen there. So for purposes of teaching, I'll just let you know, we're going to make it to the end of evil one, and we're not going to spend a week on for yours is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever. Amen. And I'm not going to dig too deep into why that exists. You can look at that on your own. I don't do that with a lot of passages. Usually we, do our, we dig in here together, but there's too much to say in regards to that middle part, which of course is forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now this is one of the more confusing moments in the Lord's Prayer because depending on what room you're in, if you say the Lord's Prayer with the room, you might say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. You might say, forgive us our transgressions as we forgive those who have transgressed against us. You might say, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us. And you wouldn't be wrong because somebody in the room would say it with you while the other half of the room said the other word and, or the, the other third said the other one. And that's because in different catechisms, different prayer books, different translations, we land on debts, we land on transgressions, we land on sins. And I don't, I'm not satisfied to just go, eh, who cares? You know, just land where you want to land. Uh, that's not good enough. As far as I'm concerned, we can surely do better. Look at Luke 11. This is the other version of this, forgive us our sins. And you'll note that it is definitely translated sins, for we also forgive everyone who is, and then look at this switch, indebted to us, not sins against us. Don't lead us in temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Why does Luke switch it up? Well, Luke's translation switches it up because there's two different words in the Greek. So Jesus, according to Luke, said, forgive us our sins, are literally our hamartias, those things in which we miss the mark, as we forgive those who are. And then he jumps back to the same word that's used in Matthew, those that are indebted to us. He doesn't use the word sins against us. Um, why this confusion and what do we do about it? Well, I'm certainly not going to claim to be able to solve this problem tonight, but I'll throw my two cents in. It could be that the Aramaic word and the Aramaic 
translation of the Lord's Prayer is the earliest widespread usage of the Lord's Prayer in the history of the 2000 year history of the church. The Aramaic Lord's Prayer is the one that was used the earliest and the Aramaic word for debt is the same as the Aramaic word for sin. So it's quite possible that as those prayers were getting translated, those forgive us our debts as we forgive those our debtors. And then Luke's forgive us our sin as we forgive our debtors. It could be because in Aramaic, those are interchangeable words. It might be why we landed on those two. And so I, that's as close as I'll get to solving that issue, um, which means we didn't solve it at all. Okay, we'll leave it there then. Uh, what can we do then with this portion of the prayer within the context, within the framework of Jesus as a first century Jewish man working with Torah and the Psalms and the prophets? What can we do with the ideas behind this prayer in regards to forgiveness of sins? Why this confusion? I want to show you one Paul text to show you that you can take this different ways, either sin or debt. Paul says this in Romans 4, 4, to him who works, this is a very famous grace verse, by the way, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but they are counted as debt. So something that you owe or something that is owed to you. So if God were to bless you based on what you do, then God would be in debt to you. Interestingly enough, same word that Jesus uses in the Lord's prayer. That doesn't get us any closer to the source of what might be said other than this idea that whether Jesus said sins or debts or transgressions, what we know is that the Jewish idea of sin was very closely linked to the idea of debt. In fact, the concept of sins as debts was an important second temple Jewish idea. I hope you realize that the temple standing in Jesus' day is second temple Judaism. And so from several hundred years in front of Christ up until the fall of the temple in AD 70, we're dealing with over a half a millennium of that second temple Judaism. And out of second temple Judaism with roots in the Midrash, Midrash is the oral tradition, it tied together the year of Jubilee with the idea of a coming Messiah. So look at that first part again. The concept of sin as a debt you could even say debt as sin were closely linked in the oral tradition of Judaism. And so the scriptures in the Old Testament will often speak of debt and they will link it to sin as if they are the same thing. Now, that concept shouldn't be taken over to I owe $300 on a credit card, therefore I have $300 worth of sin. Um, that would be a modern that would be us trying to take an old Midrash, second century temple Judaism idea and translate it today. That ought to tell you that we need some fresh ideas when it comes to the Lord's Prayer. So what is Jesus talking about in relation to his own day? So it ties together two major Jewish concepts. One isn't all that popular in our world, Jubilee. The other, pretty popular, the idea of a Messiah. That's why we call ourselves Christians, because we think he's come. We think his name was Jesus. We think he died on the cross for our sins and that he resurrected. In fact, scratch about 90% of that. Let me start over. We think the Messiah come because he resurrected. That's it. Plain and simple. I mean, you're a Christian because you believe in a resurrected Jesus. I mean, you can believe in a Jesus that walks on water, heals the sick, raises the dead, died on a cross. But if you don't believe in a resurrected Jesus, 
then you don't link to a church of 2,000 years because resurrection is what binds us. So for believers, we have a resurrected Messiah. We don't have any problem with Messiah talk. We don't talk a lot about Jubilee. When we do, we say it in sort of spiritual terms. We'll say things like, oh, somebody here, I just want to prophesy this is going to be a Jubilee year for our church. And usually what we mean by that is um, things are going to go really well for us. Um, You don't hear jubilee talk in the midst of persecution. You don't hear jubilee talk in the midst of discouragement or in the midst of bad things happening. And uh, maybe you should. But what did that word mean inside of this Jewish idea? So jubilee, I want to take you Leviticus 25 because, and I I know it looks like a lot of verses and I promise I'm not going to be here forever, but we're so unfamiliar with the concept. I want to see it through Jewish eyes first. That's, then we can add Jesus. Here's what God says to Israel in Torah, Leviticus 25, 8. You shall count seven Sabbaths of years for yourself. Now, I want to warn you. This is, this is so unheralded, even in Jesus' day, that we don't even have a lot of evidence that Israel took this serious. What I mean by that is, We don't have a lot of jubilee evidence from Leviticus 25 all the way up through the time of Christ. And that'll make, maybe that'll make more sense in a moment. But I just want you to keep that in mind because this is going to sound so unfamiliar to our Christian ear because we do a lot of teaching on the Ten Commandments, do a lot of teaching on dietary law, sanitary law. Don't hear a lot about jubilee. We've only spiritualized it. But it wasn't a spiritual event for Israel. It was a natural event. After seven Sabbaths of years, that's seven times seven years. The time of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be to you 49 years. Makes sense. A a time of years being seven. So after 49 years, verse nine, you shall cause the trumpet of Jubilee to sound on the 10th day of the seventh month on the day of atonement. You shall make the trumpet sound throughout all your land. So on the 50th year. Next verse. And you shall consecrate that 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all the inhabitants. Everybody gets to go free. Liberty to all the inhabitants. Everyone gets to go free. Slaves, servants, prisoners, although there's no real penal code in the Torah. We don't really have evidence of prison systems, jailhouses, and whatever there was that incarcerated anyone. You got to go free in Jubilee. It shall be a Jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his possession, and each of you shall return to his family. So if you've been sold into slavery or subjected into servanthood, you go back to your home. You go back to your property that your family owned. Property did not hold permanent, did not hold transfer possession if a jubilee was declared. It went back to its original owner. You can see why this was very controversial in Israel as much as it would be in any other land to actually declare a jubilee. 11. That 50th year shall be a jubilee year in it. You shall neither sow. You shall not reap what grows of its own accord. You shall not gather the grapes of an untended vine. Everything shuts down in the 50th year. Not only is everyone freed, even the land gets to take a one-year nap. Everything gets to return. It's a start over. It's It's an economic reset in the land of Israel. 12. For it is jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat its produce from the field. In this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his possession. Now, I'd recommend you take a look at Leviticus 25. There's a lot of detail that I'm not going to get into, some of which is you've got to prorate your 
property. Say you're going to sell it to a guy and you're, it's been six years since the last Jubilee. You got to prorate the property because he's only going to get it for 44 years. He's not going to get it for the whole 50. So you can only charge him 44 years worth. Uh, you had to prorate your rents. You had to prorate your mortgages. You had to prorate your sales prices. All of those things revolving around Jubilee. Interestingly enough, as I said before, we don't have evidence that Israel really took it serious in that we don't know if they actually practiced actual Jubilee, but it was a part of this idea of rest. Jubilee, what was the other one? Messiah, all right? And so Messiah, add that with Jubilee. Look at Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, one and two, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. When this comes out in Isaiah's world, this is who in the world is talking? We don't know. You and I know. We're going to find out in a moment. But they don't know. This is just someone prophesying that the Spirit of the Lord God is going to be upon him because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor, sent me to heal the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives. Liberty to the captives and opening of a prison to those who are bound. That's Jubilee talk to a Jew. They hear Isaiah 61. They're taking the concept of Jubilee and they're mixing it with the anointed one. Whoever the spirit of the Lord is upon, whoever is the anointed one has the power to declare an actual Jubilee. They have the power to declare that prisoners get set free and that the opening of the prison to those people who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Look at that. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, Messiah will declare a jubilee. Then you put Jesus into the jubilee. And when Jesus goes into the jubilee, this happens in the synagogue on a Saturday in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus is handed the scroll of Isaiah and he opens to chapter 61 and he begins to read. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Do you recognize this? Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the acceptable or the jubilee year of the Lord. He's basically just reading it word for word out of Isaiah 61. And then he closed the book. He gave the book back to the attendant and he sat down and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him and he couldn't just let it rest. He couldn't stop at having read Isaiah 61 and rolled it up and handed it off. He had to declare one more thing and this changes the world because in this moment, if he's true, then the Messiah and the Jubilee have come and it looks different than people thought it would. He began to say to them today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And so Jesus believed in a Jubilee. He believed in a Messiah and he believed that it was him as Messiah to declare Jubilee. And he claims that this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears, which means that the Messiah has the right to declare who will be free. But there's one more. There's us and Jubilee. We know what Jubilee is, liberty, freedom. We know who the, what the Messiah prophecy is. And we know that the Messiah prophecy and the Jubilee prophecy go hand in hand. And we know Jesus thought it was him. So what are we in the middle of the Jubilee? What scripture belongs to us? Matthew 6, 12. Why? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Declare 
jubilee to us as we declare mutual jubilee because it cannot be done in a vacuum as we give jubilee which is forgiveness of debt and liberty whatever that looks like and you might say oh jubilee was supposed to be natural i just showed you that jubilee is supernatural and his name is jesus and so the jubilee promised to israel had nothing to do they didn't even maybe practice it in the literal but they get it in the spiritual through the man named Jesus. And you and I get to participate in that we give Jubilee, which is forgiveness and liberty. And when we give Jubilee, we have Jubilee. No chance for a one-sided Jubilee because everybody goes free in Jubilee. So if I'm forgiven in Jubilee, you're forgiven in Jubilee. If you're forgiven in Jubilee, I have to be forgiven in Jubilee. If I'm released of my debt, you have to be released of your debt. I can't be forgiven, but you're not forgiven. I don't get my land back, but you don't get your land back. My slaves get to go free, but your slaves don't get to go free. My servants are released in Jubilee, but your servant didn't exist that way. This is an equality found at the foot of Jesus text. It's the Messiah and Jubilee married in one, and his name is Jesus. When we pray, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We're praying the prayer of Jubilee. We're declaring that Jubilee doesn't just belong to me. Whatever forgiveness I have, you have. And then I have a responsibility. Let's pause. What would have been the individual responsibility during Jubilee? National Jubilee is called. Seventh month, Day of Atonement, trumpet blasts, 50th year. Land goes fallow. Everything rests. I have to return whatever was not my family's at the beginning of Jubilee. That's my responsibility. I have to do that. I have to release whatever is in bondage. I have to do that. It's my responsibility. Why do I do it? Because Jubilee has been declared. It's an automatic thing. Trumpet blast Jubilee. I have to do it. I don't get to argue with it. I belong in the family. Therefore, I belong in Jubilee. If it's been declared that everybody goes free, I don't get to say, no, my servants don't go free. I refuse Jubilee. No, Jubilee is universal. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors is us participating in Jubilee that if God has declared our debtors free, we have to declare our debtors free because we participate in the Jubilee of the Messiah. This is the language of the kingdom. And so there's no chance for a one-sided Jubilee and that caused me to ask a question that I wanted to just slow down and walk through the scriptures with because this is the major objection to the Lord's Prayer in a lot of Christian circles, particularly in grace circles. is because Jesus goes, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We go, oh, we don't have to pray that because Jesus forgives us our debts anyway. And I think we're saying that because we're missing the context. Jesus, I don't think, is telling you the key to being forgiven is to forgive. Jesus is telling you forgiveness comes automatic for people who know they are forgiven. You don't have a way around it. If Jubilee's been declared over you, you have to declare Jubilee over other people. That's why it's Jubilee. It's not individual freedom. It's everyone's freedom. We're a big individualistic society, particularly in Christianity. It's like, come meet your personal Savior. Come meet Jesus. I think it was Bonhoeffer that said there's one Christian equals no Christian. In other words, there is no such thing as the individual Christian. 
there's the saved member of the church. You are a part of the family. Jubilee declared over one is jubilee declared over all. So forgive my debts is give me jubilee. Let me show that jubilee. So, so if the argument from, the grace, from, from our grace sensitivities and mentality is we don't have to pray that because we're already forgiven. Okay, then let's deal with that. All right. Because there is an unequivocal argument in the New Testament that sin is not an issue for God. He is not slowed down by sin. He has conquered sin. He has defeated sin. You and I walked for years through the book of John and we watched Jesus conquer sin through a, through a present judgment of the cross. You and I walked through five chapters of 1 John and we watched God conquer sin by calling himself love. And that sin had no dominion over us and that sin was, you almost can take 1 John and keep pushing the envelope on it and go, the more you know who you are in Christ, the less sin is even a thing for you. Even when you fail, that failure doesn't define you. And so we've already crossed that bridge, but there's going to be people who they tune into a subtitle like forgive us our debts and they need the reassurance of a forgiveness. And so let's look at the New Testament idea of it. And I want to start with a Jesus story first because the Jesus stories help round out the, the Sermon on the Mount, they help round out the other Jesus stories. He gives multiple stories on the same topic oftentimes. Right after the Lord's Prayer, I mean right after the Amen. That is the King, power, and glory forever. Amen. This pops up. Matthew 6, 14. If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often... Should my brother sin against me and I forgive him up to seven times? All right. If you forgive, you are forgiven. If you don't forgive, you aren't forgiven. This is immediately following the Lord's Prayer. What does this mean? Let's look at another Jesus story to help us. Lord, now I want you to notice way back in Matthew 6, Peter asked this question. We don't get fullness until we get here in Matthew 18. He asks it again. Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but I say to you up to 70 times seven. So how many times? 400. <laughs> Quick math. Don't have to break out your calculator. 70 times, 490 times. All right. So if we are taking the numbers literally, then Jesus is promoting some sort of running count in your life of how many times your neighbor sins against you and you can forgive them and forgive them and forgive them. But there will come a time when you don't forgive them any longer. Well, let me tell you that I do not believe that Jesus is trying to give you a literal number of forgiveness when you get into these Jesus stories, remember that we are dealing parabolically oftentimes. We are dealing allegorically almost all of the time. And so when Jesus gives these answers, it's not, it's not that they're up for interpretation. It's that they were interpreted by people who understood their own stories, which we don't often do. And so when Jesus says 70 times 7, we have to ask ourselves, what is it? That's being referenced. And so let's read on because Jesus gives him a story. Therefore, 
The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. Here comes the story. Can you go back one screen? I just want to make sure one thing right here. This, don't miss this. I have read this story for years and missed this key little phrase. The, therefore, when you see a therefore, find out what it's there for. What's the question? How many times do I got to forgive? Jesus goes, 70 times 7. Therefore, in light of circle 70 times 7, in light of that special number, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king. What area are we now defining? The kingdom of the earth or the kingdom of, of the heaven? Kingdom of heaven. What I'm about to show you is how citizens of the kingdom of heaven should respond. You watch? Think in terms of the kingdom, all right? Which you know doesn't come with observation, which you know is the invisible, which you know is the way of, of the Father. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. How would the king of heaven settle accounts with his servants? And so the king of heaven, desiring to settle accounts with his servants, verse 24, when he begun to settle the accounts, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents, but the man was not able to pay. So his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and that payment be made. Uh-oh. 26. The servant therefore fell down before him and said, Master, have patience with me, and I'll pay you all. And the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. The master declared a jubilee. That's how a Jew would hear this story. The master declared a jubilee. That's the only way you can get out of debt. That's the only way you're not a servant anymore, is if you have a, ceremony, a spiritual jubilee declared. And so the master declares jubilee, you're free, you don't owe me anything. Awesome story. If it ended right there, it would be great, but it doesn't. So the servant goes out and found one of his fellow servants that owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid his hands on him and took him by the throat and said, pay me what you owe. Just to make sure you understand, the guy choking the other guy was just forgiven a debt of 10,000 talents. But he went out and found a dude that owes him, let's say a hundred bucks. And he says, you've got to pay me, pay me everything that you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and he begged him and said, have patience with me. I'll pay it all. Of course, that's what he said. It sounds familiar. It's what the other guy had said. It's like, I need forgiveness. I need a jubilee. Have patience with me. I'll do everything I can to pay it. Verse 30. And he would not, but he went and threw him into prison until he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and they came and told the master. Uh-oh. So they go back to the top of the ladder and they say to the king, the guy who wanted to settle his accounts, they say, you're not going to believe what happened. Remember the guy yesterday that you forgave 10,000 bucks? Well, he walked out on the street and he found someone that owed him a little bit and he threw them in prison until the debt is paid. 32. So his master, after he had called him, said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Here's the key question. Here comes the Lord's Prayer right at you in verse 33. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? Of course, the answer is yes, you should. 34. His master was angry. He delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly father also will do to you if each do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. We just had an illustration of the way the king forgives within his kingdom, Jubilee. 
Didn't matter how big your debt was. Didn't matter how big the problem was. Jubilee. But if you're a Jew and you hear Jubilee, Jubilee cannot be just for you. Jubilee has to be for everyone. So if a master releases you of your debt, by default, he released everybody from their debt. He released you and you and you and you. So who do you think you are? That you don't release your neighbor from your debt, from their debt. So I say it this way. The way of the kingdom is irrational forgiveness, a.k.a. 70 times 7. An absurd number. 70 times 7 that you forgive? That's complete. That's whole. That's liberating. And it's not like the systems of the world. Because Jesus shows that you cannot be a citizen of the 70 times 7 kingdom and operate under Cain and Lamech. Now you might be wondering what in the world is 7x and 77x all about. Because think like a, a Jew that has Torah. And they got this 7 number in their head and they got this 70 number in their head and they got this 77 number in their head. And it's not just that God created the earth in six days rested on the 7th and 7th is God's perfect number. In their stories, man's civilization began when Cain murders his brother Abel. Bloodshed becomes the way of man. And God puts a mark on Cain's head and sends him out and says, if anyone avenges Cain, he will be cursed seven times. In other words, if you play Cain's game, which is kill people you disagree with, you fall under a seven times curse. Okay, that's big. That means if you play the system of the world, you lose. That was God's declaration in the book of Genesis. Play the system of the world, you lose. One of Cain's grandsons is named Lamech. Lamech goes out on the field and kills a man. He has that in his blood. And when he is caught, he says, if God avenges Cain seven times, may God avenge me 77 times. And what happens in the Lamech story is the downward spiral of what happens in the system of the world. Exponentially, darkness produces darkness. Not one for one, but one for a thousand. You don't enter into a chaotic relationship in the systems of the world or in the systems of darkness and just release more chaos or equal chaos. You enter into chaos and unleash hell. There's a reason why death rides up and hell follows after in the vernacular of the apocalypse. Because wherever death is encountered, hell explodes. The systems of the world are not just eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That's Torah. The systems of the world are seven times more vengeance, or if we keep playing this game, 77 times more vengeance. So the way of the world is earn or be destroyed. Jesus is asked, how often should I forgive someone? And he picks a weird little number, but he's doing a play on words. 70 times seven. Because for a, for a Jew, when they're talking about the systems of the world, they have seven and 77 in their story, that the system of this world brings a curse upon you seven times, or the, keep that up, the system of this world brings a curse upon you 77 times. Jesus is showing you you cannot be a citizen of the kingdom of God and function in the way of Cain and the way of Lamech. You are of a different breed. In other words, 
The kingdom of God functions by irrational forgiveness. It just doesn't make sense that God declared a jubilee over you. Who are you? So the Lord's prayer is you realizing it. Forgive us our debts. As we forgive our debtors, we realize that we are irrationally forgiven. So how should we forgive? I don't know, maybe 70 times seven. Maybe completely opposite of the systems of this world. Maybe when you forgive, it doesn't have to be earned. Because here's what really happens in a world lacking of forgiveness. You don't really bind your neighbor when you don't forgive them. You bind you when you don't forgive them. Your neighbor is free whether you give them forgiveness or not. And do you know why they are free? Because Jubilee. Jubilee declared all of you free. But you have a responsibility in Jubilee. And part of your responsibility is to walk in the beautiful liberty you've been given. But the other part of your responsibility cannot be abdicated. That responsibility is yours to release everyone around you into the jubilee that is theirs. Because if you refuse to release those around you into the jubilee that is theirs, you cannot walk in jubilee. Because you can only walk in the freedom that you give. You can only walk in the forgiveness that you give. It doesn't mean God hasn't declared jubilee over the earth. I believe every person in this world tonight that knows nothing about God is forgiven of their sins. Jesus doesn't have to die twice for them. He's already died once for them. How much more blood does he need to shed to forgive the world of their sins? Well, then why are they not all walking in it? Oh, well, that's why the gospel is necessary. Because the kingdom needs proclaimed to a people who need to reconcile themselves back to God, knowing Nothing at this point. They know nothing. But if they could be introduced to a God who has already taken care of the sin debt, then they could walk into the fullness of that forgiveness. How do I know he's already taken care of the sin debt? This is the rebuttal to the, oh, we don't need to pray the Lord's Prayer because you're not forgiven as you're for, at, you don't get forgiveness as you forgive. Here's the rebuttal. Realize you're forgiven, but you're no more forgiven than the rest of the world. It's just that you know how to walk in it. Watch what Paul says. 2 Corinthians 5.19. I use NRSV here because the wording here cleans it up just a touch. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. That's bringing the world back to himself. How did he do it? By not counting their trespasses against them. Please read that again. In Christ, God reconciled the world. How? Because he did not count their trespasses against them. How many of the world's sins have been counted against them? According to 2 Corinthians 5.19. Zero. God reconciled the world back to himself because he doesn't count their sins against them. Is this irrational forgiveness? Absolutely. Undeserved forgiveness. This is jubilee. You have a debt, but it's been declared that you don't owe it. Salvation is a jubilee. When Jesus said, this is the acceptable year of the Lord, that's the declaration of jubilee. He didn't count their trespass against them, and he gives the message of reconciliation to us, which, by the way, is what the ministry is supposed to be. Everyone that ever opens their Bible and shares the gospel should be ministering reconciliation. Because that's the message that we have. God has forgiven you. Wake up to it. Realize that the life of the resurrected one could be yours. Be baptized into Christ so you can live in the fullness of who he is. That's one of them. There's more. Ephesians 1.7. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. What is redemption in the blood of Jesus? Paul describes it as the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Simplistically, the riches of God's grace is the forgiveness of sins. 
You can take it to a thousand other branches outside of that, but you'll miss the point. You want to know what grace is? Forgiveness of sins. The more you understand grace, the more you'll understand forgiveness of sins. The less you understand grace, the less you'll understand forgiveness of sins. I'm not giving you a theory. I'm giving you a life-lived fact. The less you understand the grace of God, the less you'll know you're forgiven. And I promise you this, the less you understand the grace of God, the less you'll think other people are forgiven. If it stuck you sideways a moment ago when I said the whole world is forgiven of their sins, it's because you haven't had a revelation of God's grace. And, and if you have a revelation of God's grace, you'll look at the world and go, they must be forgiven of their sins. I mean, how many times is Jesus going to come and die? It doesn't mean they're walking in it, but if God's reconciled the world back to himself, what's left is the world to reconcile themselves to that knowledge. So done deal, didn't count their sins against them, and the grace of God and the riches of God's grace is the forgiveness of sins. To the Colossians, Paul says in chapter 2, verse 13, be kind to one another, be tenderhearted, and forgive one another even as God and Christ forgave you. Look at that. Why in the world would you forgive? They don't deserve it. They haven't earned it. And by God, they didn't even ask for it. They didn't ask you to forgive them. I'll forgive them if they ask me. I'll forgive them if they show me they're worth it. That's Cain's world. That's Lamech's world. You don't get to live in that world. You're a citizen of the kingdom. How does the father handle debt in the kingdom? He declares a jubilee. And if his citizens know what jubilee is, then they know everybody else is forgiven too. And if they don't know what jubilee is, they go grab their neighbor and hold them by the collar and demand they pay them back. And Jesus said, you can't live that way because you're members of a higher society. You're members of a better kingdom. You're citizens of something greater. So be kind to people. Be tenderhearted. Bless them as God in Christ forgave you. Let me ask you, how are you for, why are you forgiven? God in Christ forgave you. So God's love is expressed in Christ and you are forgiven because you asked, because you lived up to it, because you did right, because of Jesus. This whole thing is because of Jesus. It is why he is the centerpiece of the gospel message. It is why if we can't find Jesus in our sermons, our sermons drift. It's why we leave and we're confused. I don't know what just happened. I didn't see enough of Jesus. When you see enough of Jesus, something occurs inside of you. It doesn't mean it's always simple. And it doesn't mean it doesn't sometimes sting. When you have an apocalypse, an unveiling of Jesus, there's light gets turned on into areas of your life. But you leave knowing that it's not me it's him. This is why we are growing frustrated when we hear only us instead of him. We, hearing us isn't saving us, but hearing him is the answer for saving us. I told you Colossians, and I knew this was Ephesians 4. So now we're in Colossians 2. You be, Colossians 2.13, you being dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. This is you as a Gentile. Gentiles were uncircumcised. He made you alive together with him. How did he make you alive? He forgave you all your trespasses. So if you're not forgiven of your sins, you're not even alive in Christ. So if what Jesus meant was, if on an individual basis, you don't forgive your neighbor, then I don't forgive you of your sins, then you can just kick out everything Paul says to the, to the Corinthians, to the Ephesians, and to the Colossians because the life of Christ isn't activated in you permanently. It's activated in you temporarily. Forgave your neighbor, now you're saved. Don't forgive your neighbor, now you're lost. 
like flipping on a light switch, turning off the light switch, flipping on the light switch. Or Jesus means what he says. If you belong to the kingdom, you've been given a jubilee. And if you knew what that meant, you'd realize that everybody else has been given one too. And if you realize that everybody else has been given one too, you would declare them free. What happens if you don't? Here's what I say. Here, here's, here's my life experience. What happens if you don't? If you wrong me and I don't forgive you, you may not even know you wronged me. I have an obligation by, according to the gospels, to approach you. And you know why I have an obligation to approach you? Because relationship's important to God. So you and I being on good terms is actually important to the father because parents don't want to see their kids fight. What parent wants to see their, their kids so fractured they won't talk to each other? Oh, is, is he coming to the reunion? I'm not coming. Oh, I don't. Are they coming home for Christmas? They're coming home for Christmas. I'm not coming home for Christmas. There's no parents excited about that. Like this is the way we're going to live our lives. So the father wants us approaching one another over our wrongs because he wants his kids getting along. What good father doesn't want their family to get along? But if I don't approach, and you don't know you wronged me, if I don't forgive you, you're not held in bondage by my unforgiveness. I'm held in bondage by my unforgiveness. You obsess me. You take up my headspace. You live inside there rent-free. And you may even have wronged me viciously. And you should apologize. But whether you ever do or not, what I do doesn't affect you. But man, it affects me. And so if I don't forgive you, how can I possibly expect to walk in the glorious liberty of knowing I'm forgiven? The reality is I can't. Not because God hasn't forgiven me, because he has forgiven you all your trespasses. But I don't know it because I'm such a slave to keeping you underneath unforgiveness, I can't walk in liberty. There's no way you can live free when you keep everybody around you in bondage. And that is a principle of the kingdom. So when you're forgiven your 10,000 debt that you can't possibly repay, don't grab your neighbor by the collar and ask for theirs back. If you're this forgiven, how could you not forgive everyone around you? We're judgmental because we think we're being judged. We're hateful because we don't think we're loved. We don't find our freedom and our liberty in the finished work of Christ. We find it in our effort. And then we judge everybody else's lack of effort. If they read as much as me, fasted as much as me, tried as hard as I did, worshiped the way I do, talked to God the way I do, then they could have what I have, or then I would give them what they deserve. You are playing Cain's game. You are playing Lamech's game. And it's seven times the curse and 77 times the curse. And it never goes away. And it just gets worse. And Jesus wants to deliver us from it. So what's he say right in the middle of the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The minute I know how forgiven I am, I'll forgive everybody around me. If Jubilee's for me, it's for you. It can't just be for me. It's got to be for you too. Welcome to a world where I'm not the only one forgiven. Welcome to a world where you are too. Now, if you walked in it, what might that do for your life? So let's land here. Do not lead us this Matthew 6.13. You're thinking, oh man, if this takes as long as that last part, there's no way we're going to get done. Well, you... <laughs> And you're right. If this takes as long as that last part, we're not going to get done. But it's not going to take as long as that last part. Thus saith the Lord. 
<laughs> Matthew 6.13. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And I told you before, yours is the kingdom, power, and glory forever. Amen. That's the doxology that's added. So let's look at those last two lines. Don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. What do we know about that phrase? Don't lead us into temptation. Just keep this in your mind. Do not lead us into temptation. Do not lead us into temptation. Matthew 4.1. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Okay. Same word in the Greek, by the way. Don't lead us into temptation is the same word that happened two chapters earlier to Jesus prior to the Sermon on the Mount. Who did the tempting? Matthew 4.1. To be tempted by the devil. So when Jesus says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, he's not assuming that sometimes God does. But we're going to cross our fingers and ask God not to. Because in his own experience, the tempter is not his father. The tempter is always the evil one. However, the Holy Spirit did lead him into the wilderness. The Holy Spirit didn't necessarily lead him into the temptation. Right? We know that God's not the tempter. James knew it and said this. James 1, 13, 14. Don't let anyone say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Each, watch this, each one of you is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Each one of you is tempted when he's drawn away into a wilderness. When you go down into that dark place, that's the point of temptation. So, we understand God is not the tempter. Jesus said it. James said it. So why are we praying this? We are praying that we do not go down into the wilderness. But if we do, when we do. Because as much as you don't want to go into the wilderness, newsflash, you are going into the wilderness. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, and you may not have to stay long. And you'll probably go more than once. But you're going to go into a dry spell. You're going to go into a dark place. You're going to go into the deepest and worst spot that you can go. And when you do, we are praying he deliver us from the evil one that lives there. And sometimes that evil one looks like a snake that talks to you in a garden. And sometimes that evil one looks like the devil that talks to you in the wilderness. And sometimes that evil looks like the dragon with four heads that comes up out of the sea in the book of Revelation and asks for your loyalty. And whatever he looks like, the prayer of the Lord's Prayer, and it's why the church has gravitated to the Lord's Prayer, is I know I'm going to go into trouble. Deliver me from the evil one because he's a snake and he's a roaring lion and he's seeking whom he may devour and he hunts good in the wilderness. The problem is I know I got to go into the wilderness because humans have to go through them. So when I get there, settle my heart that you walk through the wilderness with me. That whatever I go through, you go through. Deliver me from the evil that lives there. I want you to notice the suggestion of temptation and the enemy comes at the end of the Lord's Prayer. And I think it's because they're secondary to you knowing that he's a father who art in heaven, hallowed be his name. His kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Notice the sunshine at the top of the prayer. And I, I told you before, I... I, I uh, I love N.T. Wright's illustration of part of the reason why we have no fatherhood identity is because we've, we came into Christianity through the back door of the Lord's Prayer. We came in running from the evil one, avoiding temptation, and begging for forgiveness of our sins. And when you come to Christ trying to get away from the devil, miss temptation, and beg for forgiveness, look how far away it is till you get to the Father. And there's something very powerful about the, the Lord's Prayer in reverse. 
And I like how N.T. Wright says it's like God invites you to come to his house, but when you get there, you go around and come through the back door. And it's not the way he wanted to greet you because you put the stuff you want the people to see up front at the front door. And what does he open with? Our father. And what do you want you to know first? You're my kid. Welcome home. Don't sneak in the back door like you don't know me. Come in through the front door like you know me. And a lot of us came in to get away from evil. We came in to miss hell. We came in to get away from temptation. We came in to be forgiven of our sins. And it took us years to realize that the kingdom is coming to the earth and that he is our father. So don't pray it backwards. Because if you pray, I know you don't pray it backwards. Don't live it backwards. Don't live it backwards. Don't spend your whole life looking for evil. And then hopefully when you get somewhere mature, you'll know he's your father. We are better than this. And we should live like it. So I think these things are secondary to us knowing he's our dad and knowing that the kingdom has come. I don't feel like we've really done justice to the Lord's Prayer. I feel like there's so much more we could say about this prayer. And I just want to encourage you to keep investigating it, to make it a part of your life from time to time and see what the Holy Spirit says to you in it. I think there are some amazing truths that are to be uncovered. And as we uncover them, I think we'll find a liberty that Paul realized, he said in Galatians 5, it is for freedom he set us free. That's what we're looking for. The freedom simply because he has set us free. And I think the key is in things like this prayer. All right, there's, there's more to say. Um, there's uh, uh, always more to say. Every week I get to the end and realize I'm not really at the end, but here we are. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this. What a, what, a, what a moment of joyous wrestling we have had today of, of landing in this spot. And the revelation of my own forgiveness has been beautiful today. And then the knowledge that there's things I need to release because I've held on to them. I've failed to forgive ministers and ministries and I've held people in contempt in my heart. And in those areas, I haven't been able to be truly free because they robbed my thinking. And that's not on you, Father. You've released them in your jubilee as you've released me. But I need to release them. And if there's anybody that any of us have, anything any of us have, we've got to let go of. Stuff said to us, stuff done to us slights whether they were real or imagined teach us help us to let go in jesus name amen